you again to turn with us to the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we come to our 50th sermon on Romans chapter 8. By comparison, we preached a total of 133 sermons on the entire book of Genesis. So 50 sermons on one chapter of the Bible is a lot. And I'm sure some would say a bit much (laughs) on one chapter. But I hope that we have seen just how great the great eight really is. There is so much in this particular chapter of the Bible to encourage us and to help us. And this morning we come to the verse that some consider the pinnacle of the whole chapter. We've already heard wonderful truths like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have seen the sweet doctrine of adoption and what it means to have God as our Father. We have learned about the power of hope and even about the intercession of the Spirit and how God works through these to bring us safely to heaven. In the coming verses, we are going to be learning about just how secure we are as Christians, how nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But for many Christians, there is no truth in Romans 8, or even in all of Scripture, that has been more commonly their close companion and their encouraging friend than Romans 8, verse 28. This is a verse that has helped so many Christians through so many trials and so many circumstances. Now, we do not want to rip Romans 8, 28 out of its context. We want to read this verse the way Paul wrote it and the way God inspired it, And this means we need to read verse 28 in connection with what comes before it and what comes after it. And so let's begin reading in Romans 8, verse 26. Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now as we begin to think about Romans 8.28, let me first acknowledge that different Bible versions translate Romans 8.28 a bit differently. Uh, In versions like the New American Standard or the New International Version, God is the subject. 
So for example, the NIV says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is the subject. In the King James, the New King James, the ESV, and others, all things is the subject. For example, the New King James. And we know that all things work together for good. The truth is, both of those ways of translating the verse are possible from the Greek. And so that's why you see both translations. At the end of the day, I think they really all mean the same thing. All things work for good, but all things do not work for good on their own. It is God who causes all things to work for good. And so while many versions translate Romans 8.28 a little differently, the standard versions all agree on what the verse is saying, that God works all things for good for his people. Now, what is the connection between verses 26 and 27 and verse 28? Verse 28. Well, remember, verse 26 speaks about weakness and specifically our ignorance as Christians when it comes to prayer. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. And we pointed out last week that you and I do not know all the details of the sovereign will of God. We do not always know how to pray in the midst of a messy situation. But we were given good news. Though we do not know the future, though we do not always know how to pray for the future, we can be sure of this. Not only that the Spirit intercedes for us, but that all things are going to work out for our good. That's encouraging, isn't it? Then you see that Romans 8.28 falls right in line with verses 24 and 25 and verses 26 and 27. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is groaning for the day of redemption. This is a world of trouble, a world of trial, a world of tribulations, a world of suffering and a heartache. But God has promised, I'm sorry, God has provided for us. We have hope in his promises. That's verses 25 and 26. We have the intercession of his spirit, verses 26 and 27. And then here's another provision for us from God as we live in this fallen, broken down world. And here it is, verse 28. All that is happening in this world is happening for our good if we are Christians. In other words, Paul is basically just listing for us gift after gift after gift from God to us so that even in this fallen world where you may lose your job or you may get cancer or you may be dealing with a stomach virus or whatever it is that's happening, you have list after list after list of what God has done to help you persevere in faith. I would guess that many of you could testify to how this knowledge that all is working for your good has been a true help to you in the midst of really tough times. How many times would you have been more discouraged or more overwhelmed by a difficult or sad or frustrating situation? But God, by His Holy Spirit, brought this verse into your mind and you were able to say to your soul, you preached to yourself and you said, Soul... Why are you cast down within me? Is not God going to work even this for your good? 
and you were able to find help. Well, our outline for unpacking this verse is simple. It's two questions. Who is this promise for, and what is the promise? That's our outline. Who is this promise for, and what is the promise? Now, this morning, we're going to spend all of our time on the first answer to the first question. Who is this promise for? Because not everyone can claim Romans 8, 28. Not everyone has the right to say that all is working for their good. In fact, for most people in this world today, all is not working for their good. At least not in the sense of their eternal happiness. Instead, for most people today, God is working all things to bring the wicked to a day when they will experience his wrath in hell for all eternity. This is our default position as human beings. Unless there has been a radical change in our lives, we must assume that Romans 8.28 is not for us. Unless you have been given a new heart, come to true faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not you, then every moment you live is a moment of unbelief. Every moment you live is a moment in which you are storing up wrath for yourself. If you are an unbeliever, every moment you live is a moment working towards your eternal condemnation. Don't be deceived and quote Romans 8.28 as if it's for you. It's not for you, unbeliever. Though it certainly can be. If you only... Take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need is for Christ to save you. Then this promise can be for you. Our verse tells us that this promise is for those who love God. This is the first of two answers that our verse gives us about who this promise is for. This promise is for those who love God. Which is the same thing as saying that this is a promise for Christians. Because here is the decisive mark of a Christian. Someone who loves God. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love God. And there is no such thing as someone who truly loves God that isn't a Christian. These things are absolutely inseparable. Those who have not been born again, they do not love God. Romans has already told us that people by nature have enmity in their heart against God. They may, like, they may have love towards an idea of God that they've created. They may love a God that they imagine is completely centered on them. But the true God, the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible, natural man does not love that God. And if you love that God, it is only because a miracle of grace has taken place in your life. And giving you the eyes to see his beauty and his glory. So this morning all I want to do is ask you a few questions. So that you can examine your life and see, is this promise for you? Are you a lover of God? So I'm going to ask you four questions. Four questions. Number one, do you love the true God? Do you love the true God? 
All things do not work together for the good of anyone who loves any God. The God that Paul speaks of in this verse is not Allah, and it's not Zeus, and it's not any other God except for Jehovah. This is not a promise that anyone can claim if they love a God of their own creation. There are so many who say, of course I love God, but what they love is a man-centered, Santa Claus-like deity that they've created. They picture God as being a God who is completely obsessed and centered on them. My God exists to serve me. My God finds his greatest happiness in serving me. I am the God of my God. Well, it's easy to love a God like that if you think you're the center of his attention. But a God who says, my glory I will give to another. A God who says, I do things for my own namesake. A God who says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. That is the true God. Is that the God you love? The God Paul is speaking of in our passage is the true God. The God who has revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. Do you love the God that you find in the pages of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the God of the Psalms, the God of the prophets, the God of the gospels and the letters and the revelation. Is this the God you love? Do you love the God who is an infinite, immaterial, immutable, incomprehensible spirit? who is everlasting, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-good, pure, wise, faithful, just, merciful, majestic, in short, the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible. Is that the God you love? Do you love the God who is three persons in one Godhead? Do you love each person of the Godhead? Do you love the Father in his peculiar role as the architect of your salvation? Do you love the Father for his leadership, his provision, his protection, his tender care for you? Do you love the Father because he has adopted you and made you his child? Do you love the Father because he has opened up his throne room to you so that you can bring your every care to him? Do you love the Son and His peculiar role as the accomplisher of your salvation? Do you love Jesus, the God-man? Do you love Him for His manger and for His perfect life and for His cross and for His tomb and for His resurrection? Do you love Him because of how He accomplished all righteousness here on earth which can be imputed to you when you believe? Do you love how he reigns even now as Lord over all, over heaven and earth? Do you love Jesus because this very moment he presently intercedes for you in heaven? He obtains from the Father all that you need and he gives it to you through the Holy Spirit in your heart. Do you love the Son? Do you love the Spirit in his peculiar role as the applier of your salvation do you love the spirit for opening your eyes 
Do you love the Spirit for giving you understanding and changing your heart and causing you to be born again? Do you love the Spirit because He's the one that gave you faith to begin with and He's the one that sustains your faith and He's the one growing your faith? Do you love the Spirit because it's He who works through the Word to cause you to sense in your heart your Father's love for you? Do you love the Spirit for His sanctifying work in your life and how He is working even through trials and troubles to make you like Jesus? Church, do you love the true God? The true God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one. Do you love them all? Do you love them in their distinct roles and do you love them how they come together in perfect unity and harmony to form the one and only one God? Do you love the true God? Question number two. Do you love God and not just his gifts? Do you love God and not just his gifts? You see, it's easy to say that we love God when we consider all that he has done for us. But Paul doesn't say that this promise is for those who love God's gifts. He says this promise is for those who love God. This morning, we sit in a very comfortable sanctuary. We have padded chairs in a climate-controlled room. We have plenty of clothes to keep us warm. Most of us have eaten today, and we have no fear that we're going to go to bed tonight not having eaten. We're surrounded by people that love us and that we love. We have vehicles to get us safely home. We have nice homes to return to. We are meeting this morning with no fear of persecution or retribution because we've met The law of our land, while not as encouraging as it once was, continues to grant us freedom to be here and to live faithfully as Christians. We're not like the Hebrews. We don't live in danger of getting home and finding that our houses have been ransacked or that our brothers and sisters have been thrown in prison or that our ability to work and provide for our families has been taken away from us because we are Christians. We do not live in fear of being stoned or hanged or fed to lions or being burnt at the stake. We're safe. We have televisions. We have computers. We have so many great luxuries that others do not have. Many of us have the opportunity to take vacations every year and trips to the beach or the mountains. Above all these gifts, we have numerous copies of the Word of God sitting in our homes. To be blunt, it isn't hard for us to say we love God. It isn't a difficult thing when we think about it to say we love Him. He has blessed us a thousandfold even if we just consider the physical and the material realm without even looking at how He has blessed us in the spiritual realm. But let me ask you a question. Suppose God were to start taking those things away from you one by one. Suppose you were no longer able to take those vacations and you found yourself without the luxuries of life. Suppose your televisions and computers were taken away from you. Would you still love God then? Suppose that in God's sovereign plan you were unable to find work and you were kept from church and from these people that love you so much. 
Suppose God first took away your vehicle and then he took away your home. Would you still bless his name and would you still love him? Suppose God took away your food and your clothing and left you impoverished and alone. Suppose he took your family from you. Suppose he took your health from you. Suppose God, in his sovereign wisdom, chose to leave you without a friend in this world, cold, lonely, and in dire straits. Would you then be able to lift up your voice in praise and say, Great is the Lord. I love him. Perhaps the hardest for me to think about, what if God in his wise sovereignty chose not to save my children? What if he chose to take those we love and to leave them in blind unbelief so that despite all of our pleading and teaching and praying, they never believed? Could you still love this God? Would you still profess that he is good and that he is wise and that his ways are always best? Would you say he is my highest treasure? Would he remain the greatest love of your life? In other words, here's the question I'm getting at. Would you still love God if all of his gifts were stripped away from you? Job is our example, isn't he? Job lost his his wealth, he lost his family, he lost his health. He's sitting there in his boils. They're running in pus. And his wife urges him, curse God and die. And Job says, no. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. Search your heart. Do you truly love God or just his gifts? Question three. Question three. Do you love God with your heart? With your heart. Because you see, the tendency of some is to redefine love only in terms of action. And so a person might say, of course I love God. I've been going to church for years. I attend every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. I give of my, of, of my paycheck. I tithe. I don't curse. I don't steal. I don't cheat on my spouse. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you're a, a ministry leader. Maybe you help us vacuum the sanctuary or you serve in the nursery. But these are not the same thing as truly loving God, are they? They may be expressions of that love, and I hope they are. I hope you do all that you do out of a genuine love for God. But a person can do all of those things without a drop of love for God in their hearts. You see, as we talk about loving God, if we focus only on our actions, we run the risk of creating hypocrites. The Pharisees were the most religious people in Judaism. They kept the law better than anyone else. 
They read the scriptures. They prayed prayers. They fasted and they tithed and they gave alms to the poor. And they did not truly love God. They did all of these things out of love for themselves. They did all of those things for the praise of men. And dear church, you and I can get caught up in that. We can do things to assuage our consciences or to fit in with others around us. We can do things out of fear and we can do things for the praise of men. There are a lot of reasons why we can do things that look like actions of love to God that are not. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah and said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What God requires first of all is that we truly love him from within ourselves. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all commandments? He said, Deuteronomy 6, 5, which begins, love the Lord your God with all your heart. True love always includes an inner sense of delight in your heart. To say that you love someone is to say that there is some sort of delight in them in your heart. They are valuable to you. They bring a sense of joy to your life. To love God is to prize God. To love God is to treasure God. It's to count Him as precious to you. Psalm 16, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Psalms love to use that word, portion. It comes from the dinner table. right? You choose what's your portion going to be. What are you going to eat to satisfy your hunger? What will you choose? What do you most delight in? Look at the whole world. What do you most delight in? Is entertainment your portion? Is movies and music your portion? Is your family or your friends or your job your portion? Or can you say with David that above all else, God is the portion of my soul and my cup? That is loving God from the heart. He means everything to you. He is your all in all. This word also comes from Old Testament Israel when God was allotting to each tribe of Israel their portion of the promised land. The Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they received their share of the land east of the Jordan River. And then west of the Jordan River, you had the Simeonites in the south and the Judahites in the north and, and so forth and so on. And each tribe was given their portion of the promised land, except for one tribe. Remember? Remember the Levites? They were told that they would not have a portion of the promised land. Why? Numbers eighteen twenty. This was the tribe of priests. And the Lord said to Aaron... You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. In other words, God told the priests that they had a portion that was better than a land flowing with milk and honey. They got the incredible privilege of serving in the presence of the Lord. They got the special privilege of being His special people consecrated for His service. 
And now in the New Testament, we are told that all Christians have become priests unto God. And like the Levites of old, if we are truly saved, God is our portion. He is the greatest of all his gifts. It is in him that we find our joy and our worth and our satisfaction. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. Psalm 142, 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And so I simply ask you, do you love God from the heart? Is he your portion? True love in the heart also includes an inner sense of care and concern. If I say that I love my wife, but care little about what affects her, my love is counterfeit. When you love someone, what they love becomes important to you. When you love someone, that which is important to them becomes important to you. I see Brandon Radford back there. I don't much care for hockey, but I know he likes the Carolina Hurricanes. And for some reason, whenever I hear anything about the Hurricanes, my ears perk up because I care about Brandon, and I know he cares about the Hurricanes. I have no reason in the world to give a flip about the Kansas City Chiefs, except that Sherwood Joyner loves the Kansas City Chiefs, and I care about him, and I know it matters to him. My boys love these Skylander things. I had no idea what they even were, and if I did not have them as my sons, likely I would still to this day, and I have a clue what they were, and I'd be okay with that, but they care about them, so suddenly they matter to me. If I wasn't married to Crystal, I doubt I would ever to this day have been inside a Hobby Lobby store. Probably never once. I still don't like to go. I still like to sit in the van. But occasionally I know know what it looks like on the inside. Right? Why? Because I love her. And what matters to her becomes important to me. Well, it's the same way with God. Now, Herman, when you love God, if you love God, then what matters to him matters to you if you love God then his goals and his purposes are now becoming your goals and your purposes do you delight in that in which God delights are your thoughts and your prayers often being extended to the global purposes of God like the salvation of souls around the world is that beginning to matter to you Does missions matter to you? Does holiness matter to you? God loves holiness. He's doing all to make you holy. It matters to Him. He loves holiness. Do you love holiness? Because it matters to Him. These things that are at the very heart of God, His people, His church, His word, do they matter to you? Do you love God with your heart? Question number four, and this is our final question. Do you love God with your life? With your life. Because you see, love for God does begin in the heart, but it does not end there. 
Love is not merely action, but it does include action. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if we keep his commandments, that's the same thing as loving him. No, he says, if you love me, then, here's how you'll know it. It'll show in your action, and you'll keep my commandments. If we love God, it will show up in our lives. It ought not to be a surprise to anybody that lives around you at all for them to hear that you love God. They should say, I know that. I see that in you. Our love for God ought to affect our thinking. It ought to affect our priorities. It ought to affect how we speak and the choices we make and the way we behave. Decisions about family, decisions about work, decisions about church, decisions about free time, these are all affected by our love for God. How we spend our money, who we're going to hang around the most, these are affected by our love for God. Frankly, if you love God, it ought to be blatantly obvious in your life. And if it's not blatantly obvious, then that ought to to cause the siren bells, the alarm bells to ring for you. Why is it not blatantly obvious? Is your love for God obvious in your commitments? When people look at the convictions of your life, when they see what is a non-negotiable for you, can they see that your convictions and non-negotiables are shaped by the word of God? Are you committed to God's word and God's house and God's people? When you speak the name of God, Do you speak the name of God with reverence and honor as someone who loves him? Or does the name just come thoughtlessly, recklessly, even dare I say blasphemously off your lips? Do your priorities reveal a heart enthralled with God? Is the spread of God's glory and the growth of his kingdom, both in Rocky Mount and Romania and around the world, is that dear to you and if anybody was, were to look at your life and what you do with your life would that be obvious to them that the kingdom of God and the glory of God in this world means something to you are you marked by those qualities that describe a God lover are you quick to forgive as he has forgiven you are you overflowing with love because he has so loved you they will know that we are Christians by our love. A clear evidence that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength is that for his glory you love your neighbor as yourself. Your love for God vertically will always be seen horizontally. If there is love for God in your heart, it will be seen in what you do with your hands and your feet and with your tongue and with your mind and with all that you are. So let's hold these questions before us as a helpful tool. Let us look into the mirror and be honest with ourselves and see what we see. In light of these questions, can you honestly say from the heart, I am a lover of God. I love the true God. I love him and not just his gifts. I love him in my heart and I am seeking to love him with all of my actions. Is that you? Dear friend, if that is you, then Romans 8, 28, one of the greatest promises in all the Bible, is yours. And you can count on it. And you can drink from it. And you can find refreshment in it on Monday. And find what you need 
There will be unhappy seasons when your love for God will burn low. But if you are a Christian, there will always be a basic, default, spirit-produced love for God in your soul. And if that's you, there will be a day when you will enter paradise and you will experience love for God at its fullest and at its best. But dear friend, if these questions reveal that you are not a lover of God, then this promise is not for you. And even worse, you stand guilty of great sin before a holy God. It is cosmic treason not to treasure and to love the God of all things. Your lack of loving God is wicked. The fact that you prefer anything above God is evil. Don't color it any other way. That's what it is. And you will be condemned on the last day and spend an eternity in hell because you chose to love other things more than God. But there is hope. And that hope is provided in Jesus Christ. God sent his son to die for people who did not love him. Did you hear that? God sent his son to die for people who did not love him. And then the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, other ways, brings the gospel to your attention and causes you to see him and to love him. Friends, see your sinfulness. See how wicked your heart is that it would not love a God that created you, a God who was willing to give his son for your sake, a God who has made a way for heaven for you. How could you not love this God? Repent of not loving this God and turn to Jesus Christ. And through his death and resurrection, all of your sins can be forgiven, past, present, future. And you can be saved. And then, as a follower of Jesus, Romans 8, 28 will be yours. Amen? Let's pray.